apostles address to the nations surrounding Judah, some other nations. Um, and as we talk about these oracles concerning the nations, uh, we always keep in mind the intended audience was the people of God who are given a God's eye perspective on current human power structures. Isaiah's purpose for describing the nations is to give a better understanding of himself, the master of nations, the God of our salvation, and the rock of our refuge. And to illustrate the dangers Judah faced, particularly the danger of emulating the peoples around them from copying the nations rather than bringing the nation to the one true God. So last week uh, in chapter 21, the nation we looked at was Babylon, um, characterized at the beginning of the oracle by this uh, symbolic address as to the wilderness of the sea. Uh, Babylon, uh, Isaiah described as a chaotic, treacherous, destructive people who themselves would be on the cusp of judgment. And yet, though their demise was imminent, um, Isaiah, we talked about last week, was sickened by the fact that um, their judgment was coming upon them, rightly deserved, uh, long looked for. Um, Isaiah, we saw uh, earlier in chapter 13, had actually prayed for such a ju judgment to come upon the Babylonians. And now that it's come, or, or as, as Isaiah sees it coming, um, he's sickened by it while they remain uh, insensitive to it. Uh, they party, and uh, he, uh, he watches for God's will to be done. Uh, we also finished the chapter talking about how the judgments coming for Babylon would not just fall upon that sinful city and the kingdoms and men it represented, but on all her allies, looking at those uh, Arabian people who were described at the end of chapter 21. So... Again, this kind of warning, the judgment's not just coming on the sinful kingdom of Babylon, but everyone who placed their trust and hope in the sinful kingdoms of the world. So um, as we turn to chapter 22, uh, I want you, as I read, to sort of keep this question in mind. We're in the middle of the section on the nations, yet today the focus of chapter 22 is going to be on Jerusalem. So the question I have for you is why is this oracle concerning Jerusalem tucked in the midst of oracles concerning the nations? Um, so think about maybe what that means, uh, and we'll come and, and try to work through that question uh, this morning. But let me uh, read um, God's word, and then I'll open us in prayer. So hear now God's word as we hear it in Isaiah chapter 22. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you've gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shouting, tumultuous cities, exultant towns. You're slain or not slain with a sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots 
horsemen and here uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gate. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the four and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. And that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for. Atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to the steward, to Shebna, who's over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here? that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself. You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. O you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots. You, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. And that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Now I'll fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Thus far, God's holy word, let's ask him to uh, increase its hearing in our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do uh, worship you and praise you, O God of the heavens and earth, O Sovereign One, who is working out your perfect will from all eternity. Lord God, we confess so often when faced with uh, difficulty or calamity, like Judah, our first response is to look for the ways for ourselves to gain control over the situation, how we can fix things, rather than having hearts that trust in you first and foremost to look to you and to see how you test us 
look to you and see how you prove yourself over and over in faithfulness, even as we time and time again are faithless. Lord God, uh, as we study Isaiah's uh, prophecies of Judah this morning, help us to uh, see how his words speak to us as well, how he communicates uh, your truth to us, uh, even through words written long ago, that by your spirit, they still proclaim your truth today and are meant. These words that spoke truth to Isaiah's time speak truth to our time by your sovereign will. Help us to see that truth. Help us to obey that truth. Give us uh, understanding, but also give us wills that your will be done. And we ask these things in the name of Christ, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so back to the question I asked before I started reading. Why tuck a prophecy concerning Jerusalem, the Valley of Vision, as Isaiah um, calls it, in the midst of a series focused on prophecies against the nations? Last week we had Babylon. Next week we'll get Tyre and Sidon. Um, but you know, in between those, you know, he he makes this address uh, whose focus is the city of Jerusalem. So why do that? Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, it's the way he's putting them in this position of the other nations. And I think you're right. I mean, we see that, um, you know, Isaiah has this, uh, you know, repeated theme of what does it mean to be chosen. Um, and, you know, to be the chosen nation is to act like it. To, uh, again, that, that beautiful picture we saw earlier in the book of being this beacon on a hill that all the nations uh, see God. Uh, and come to worship on the mountain of the Lord. Um, but instead of being that beacon, um, it's as if you know, they're falling into the same trap as all the nations around them. Yeah, so it's putting them in that, that mindset of, and you know, again, think of it, you know, you know, to sort of hear, yeah, you know, Babylon, good, they deserve to smack down. Egypt, good, they deserve to smack down. <laughs> Jerusalem, oh, wait. <laughs> Um, yeah, it has that sense of sort of putting them in that their sins are like those of the nations around them. Yeah, Tim. Yeah, and that idea of, you know, the shame of your father's house. You know, again, it's the betrayal of, uh, you know, back in chapter one. You know, it's the covenant betrayal. You know, it's the betrayal, even more fundamental than that, it's betrayal against uh, uh, their father. You know, even the creatures <laughs> don't 
betray uh, their, their parentage. And that's what Israel's doing. They're violating their covenant relationship with God. And they're, they're acting uh, senseless, as he called them back in chapter 1, um, in their relationship to their heavenly father. Good. Why else? Um, i got to put my glasses on so I can see hands. Like, Kathy, I saw, like, this blur of motion, <laughs> and I was like, I think that's a hand. <laughs> but it clearly was. Kathy. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just, um, yeah, it's that betrayal of relationship, but also God's commitment to not let them go, <laughs> even amidst that betrayal. And that's the, the two kind of twin truths that Isaiah link, uh, weaves together time and time again. Um, and in this case, to sort of think about, you know, one of the things I want us to think about is how um, similar, uh, as we work through chapter 22, how similar... Israel's response to judgment was to Babylon that we saw last week. You know, last week we spent a lot of time sort of contrasting how Isaiah is reacting with more horror. He feels the weight of, of Babylon's judgment coming more than the, ba- you know, these senseless Babylonians. You know, they're having a good party, good old time, and, you know, the, the Medes and Persians are... Well, they're not knocking on the door and <laughs> going through a dry riverbank, just kind of marching into the city and slaughtering everybody. Um, and I- Isaiah's kind of given us a similar picture of Israel this morning. And, and again, to sort of think about why stick it here, then you can also think about, you know, last week we spent a little time talking about the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. So instead of giving us the usual kind of the oracle concerning Damascus, uh, an oracle concerning Egypt, you know, we, we kind of switch to that kind of symbolic representative. And we talked some last week about what the wilderness represents, what the kind of chaos of the sea. So, again, I, I think it's really intentional that he's putting Jerusalem smack next to Babylon here. Last week there was the wilderness concerning the sea. This week he's given another kind of symbolic title, Valley of the Vision. So why pair what Isaiah is calling the valley of the vision with the wilderness of the sea? Why? You know, I love the, and by the way, I love the name, valley of vision. Um, I love the, the collection of Puritan devotional prayers uh, in a nice little book called Valley of Vision. If you never have it, don't have it, highly recommend it. Um, I'm not quite sure that... <laughs> Uh, we, you know, it sounds so beautiful, the Valley of Vision. I'm not sure that's quite the sense that Isaiah is using it here. Yes, Sam. Yeah, so there, I mean, I mean, I think you're pointing out the, the irony of his usage here. You know, his repeated descriptor for Jerusalem throughout the book thus far is not just a hill, a mountain. You know, this is the mountain of the Lord. 
And now we get to this moment, instead of being a mountain, you know, it's the irony. He's describing them as a valley, <laughs> you know. And again, I, I think he's really intentional there in using it. Again, it's valley division. It sounds beautiful, but I think if we're capturing Isaiah's uses here, I think as you're, you're, you know, you're struck by the irony there, Tim, and I think that's the purpose of sort of pointing out um, instead of being the, you know, the pinnacle where everybody's looking up to, they're down in this valley. <laughs> and again, it's kind of like they're looking up to all the nations around them. You know, rather than being the nations flocking to the temple of the Lord on the mountain, they're sweeping into the valley of Jerusalem um, or into Jerusalem like it's a valley, you know, unprotected. Um, so I think it's ironic. Um, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't think of calling Jerusalem a valley, <laughs> but he does it twice. Um, uh, and, and notice, you know, it's the, especially the second time in verse five, for the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult of, and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. So, you know, it's kind of like in that day, the mountains were going to you know, come fall down on these people at, at God's command. So, um, again, I love the Puritan devotional book. Highly recommend it. Valley Division. But I'm not sure in this particular usage, Valley of Vision is being used kind of positively. <laughs> yeah, Mike. Yeah, they're looking everywhere else. Um, every other kind of remedy, every other kind of solution, they're not setting, fixing their eyes on the Lord God of hosts. The Lord, uh, and Lord God of hosts is usually um, a title that emphasizes God's sovereignty. You know, they're not seeing the sovereignty of God. Instead, they're looking to all these kinds of human solutions. Uh, good. Anything else you want to say about why six? Um, all right. So my next question is to sort of, la just like last week, we saw kind of a contrast between um, Isaiah's response to his vision and the way that the Babylonians responded to the, to, um, the judgment that was about to befall them. 
think we see a similar kind of tension this week between how Isaiah is reacting to the situation and how the, the demeanor of the citizens of Jerusalem uh, in the face of this situation. We can talk about what, maybe what exactly it seems like is going on. Um, there are different historical contexts people have had which feed the Jerusalem is this, um, and we can talk about that. But, you know, let's just first sort of, how is Isaiah's, what's the people's reaction to uh, this oncoming siege, and what's Isaiah's reaction? Yes, yes. It's this, um, yeah, the leadership uh, flees instead of fights, <laughs> and the people party instead of fights, you know? It's sort of um, these two different uh, reactions. Um, and, you know, again, it's as if the people aren't aware uh, of the, you know, the implications, you know? Um, uh, I had a good quote. Um, For tomorrow we die. Here we go expresses the ultimate rationale for a life of acquisition and indulgence. If indeed there's nothing beyond the grave, then self-sacrifice, commitment, and self-denying discipline are foolish. On the other hand, if there is life after death, it behooves us to do everything possible to discover the nature and conditions of that life and to be sure that we've met those conditions. So this kind of, you know, uh, this is all, this moment's all we got. And that's, uh, rather than that's leading them to, um, uh, leading them to repentance, is what, which Isaiah wants them to go for, <laughs> um, it leads them to party. Good. How else does the reaction of um, Isaiah and the people of Jerusalem differ? So we got, these leaders who, you know, all your leaders have fled together without the bow they were casting. So again, sort of drop the bow and run. <laughs> um, and, you know, and they're getting captured no matter how far away they flee. <laughs> um, and then we have, you know, these people in the middle of the siege kind of up on the housetop having a shouting tumultuous city of Gulfish Town kind of, yeah, it's this um, really bizarre scene of having a party on the eve of destruction. Um, uh, you know, um, there was Hurricane Camille, I think, struck the Gulf Coast back in the 60s or 70s, either late 60s or early 70s. And there's this famous story about how these people were having a hurricane party. They rented out the top floor of a house 200 people just partying up, having a good time, you know, in the face of this hurricane, and they intentionally sent the people down. And, and I, I kept thinking of that, because that's kind of the image, these people up on the rooftop, uh, exultant town, they're having just a tumultuous good time, and not understanding 
steadfast, that's coming upon you. Yeah, and here, not seeing the destruction, um, not just seeing that the destruction is coming, but not seeing the sea hand behind it. So, again, so the, it, you know, we're not even told. Again, that's, you know, there's all kinds of debate on which siege of Jerusalem is this. Um, there's some clues it might be when Sennacherib comes and lays siege to the city when Hezekiah is king. Um, and we can talk about, you know, maybe why people think that. Other people think this is the ultimate siege when the Babylonians come and completely raise the city and this is the kind of the city's last definitive dash. And again, Isaiah, he's, he's speaking you know, well in advance of these events um, and the way that prophecy works. You know, he, he, he might be kind of being deliberately vague or combining kind of two events into one description because they're all heading toward the same ultimate destruction because they're all coming from the hand of the sovereign God. Um, And look at his reaction in verse 4. Therefore I said, look away from me, let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. You know, they're parting and he's weeping. Um, You know, and Jesus is like, don't try to tell me, oh, it's all going to be all right. <laughs> you know, lighten up, have a good time. You know, he's like, do y'all not understand? This is, you know, the destruction uh, of the daughter of my people. This is the destruction. You know, notice how many, I use his daughter particularly because his daughter of Zion has been, again, been kind of one of his favorite terms for describing, you know, this child of God. And rather than weeping sad, this city, that uh, the city of the king of God, the city of the king of David, uh, is is going to fall. And they are just worried about how much can they eat and drink before it takes place. Um, anything else you want to say, kind of contrasting their reactions? I know so... Uh, another part of the reaction, um, a- and Mike uh, sort of touched on this a little earlier, um, you have this contrast between, um, you know, you've got citizens partying, having a good time, but they're also, again, to sort of get to the heart of the matter. I mean, look at verses, um, uh, the second half of, of part eight. Uh, in that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. Um, this is like a temple storeroom, house of the forest. It's got so many trees in it, um, holding up the, so it's this enormous room that's part of the temple complex. So it's called the house of the forest because it's got 
<laughs> so many trees are holding it up. Um, you saw the breaches of the city of David were many, and their response, you collected the waters of the lower pool, you counted the houses of Jerusalem, you broke down the houses to fortify the wall, you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. So, you know, careful, <laughs> um, uh, well-planned, prudent. I mean, all these seem like you know, good moves to make. Um, I guess I'm kind of a, if you're going to be, if you're going to have siege thrust upon you, you want to make sure your walls are buttressed up. You want to clear away any houses. I mean, this is like Siege Warfare 101. Clear away all the houses around the wall that are kind of built up because you don't want your, you know, you want to have a good shot of the enemy down there so you can throw stuff at them. So you kind of clear out around the walls. You make sure you have a secure water supply uh, and consistent water supply. Uh, you want to make sure your weapons are all kind of stocked and ready to go. You know, this, this seems like wisdom here. So what's wrong with it? Yeah, Ron. Yeah, they're looking to all those kind of physical preparations, all the things they can control. Yeah, Bill. This, it's this, um, they're trusting in their expenses, uh, they're trusting in their water supply, uh, they're not trusting in the Lord God of hosts. Uh, they're not trusting in the one uh, who has, again, put them in a situation. Notice, it, you know, for the Lord God of hosts, in verse 5, has a day. So this is the day that the Lord God of hosts has brought about. In that day, you looked. So he's going back in, in verse, at the second part of verse 8, saying, the Lord God had pointed a day for, for the city to, to meet this test. And rather than you look to the Lord who brought that day, in that day, you look to your weapons and your, your fortifying of walls and your water supply, but you didn't look to the one who brought the day about. Again, it's this um, stark contrast between what, how they should be acting and how they are reacting to the situation. And some people, again, think this is uh, a reference to Hezekiah. Some of you might know about Hezekiah's tunnel, um, this where he, you know, it's been, I'm, I'm told I'm not an engineer. <laughs> I should have got uh, uh, Aaron Roffel to come in and sort of, because he's, engineer he knows all this stuff he loves it uh hezekiah's tunnel apparently is an engineering marvel but it basically brings water from a spring outside the walls of jerusalem and collects it into a pool within the city itself um, so it takes spring water outside the town brings it in in a fortified way that's difficult for their enemies to cut off so some people think because he's talking about this kind of um you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. So this kind of, well, this is a 
this is a reference to Hezekiah and Hezekiah's tunnel, so maybe this is referred um, from uh, you know, from the Assyrian king Sennacherib when he comes and he lays siege to Jerusalem. So some people think, eh, maybe that. Um, but the difficulty is um, Hezekiah repents. Uh, you know, Hezekiah looks to the Lord. You know, he in a, in a sense all his preparations. He looks at all his preparations and he's afraid goes to God. So that's why some people think, well, the preparations seem like Hezekiah, but the response doesn't. Um, so other people see it as flavored. Uh, again, I think he might be being a little kind of uh, oblique to sort of to, to get the main point, which again, it's the, the contrast between the one who made all things, has a plan for life, and the person who doesn't take into account that plan is very foolish. Um, you know, God, uh, you know, you did not look to him who did it, again, sort of putting responsibility in God's hands, and not only did he do it, he planned it long ago. They're trusting in their planning, not God's plan. Uh, seems to be the contrast. Um, anything else on this kind of contrast between their um, prudent preparations and what's wrong with them? y'all pivot i mean again it's it's looking to the heart it, it's not you know it's not a commentary on boy y'all are really stupid to relocate your water supply <laughs> oh you're really stupid to build up the walls no that's not the you're really stupid to think once you've done that you're secure once you've done that um you, you've got it made um, it's you've got to look still and trust after all those prudent preparations. Yeah, John. And we see that call for repentance here, don't we? Um, in that day, so again, you know, the Lord has a, the Lord God of hosts, verse 5, has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of visions, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. This is a day that's come, um, a day on which he has taken away the covering of Judah. So the Lord God of hosts has a day. In that day, they do all this preparation stuff. But now it's back to the point was, in that day, God called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. God called for repentance. God called for uh, contrition for sin. And instead, you know, behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Um, and so, you know, again, just sort of, why do we get to the point in verse 14? Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Um, it's because they don't have repentance. You know, they don't, they don't see their need. Uh, what's, it, you know, 
whether it's the Assyrians who are laying the siege or the Babylonians, doesn't matter. What does matter is that the people are called to repent on that day and uh, and we get this description of these people who just will not recognize their sin and therefore will never exercise faith in God's provision, which makes a right relationship to him impossible. No, no, keep talking. Missing the repentance that's called for. Uh, uh, missing the point of a fast. Again, this kind of for baldness and wearing sackcloth. It's, you know, not because these things are fashionable, but those things remind you of your barrenness before God. Remind you of your need before God. Um, and instead, you know, and again, notice how they're reacting just like the Babylonians were last week. <laughs> And again, that why stick this prophecy concerning Jerusalem into the middle of judgment on the nations? Why back a oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea next to an or- oracle concerning the Valley of Vision, an oracle focused on the city of Babylon next to an oracle focused on the city of Jerusalem? Because they're acting the exact same way when faced with judgment. Oh! told that that means there's something wrong with the court so or status <laughs> it was very dramatic wasn't it <laughs> stop moving um, so I, I think you know the point of, of sticking it in here is to show how like the Babylonians they are in their hearts that faced with judgment, the Babylonians last week, they prepare a table, they spread rugs, they eat, they drink. You know, we talked about how in the book of Daniel gives a great description of this. You know, they're within the palace and they're having a huge party not knowing that the Medes and Persians that night are coming into their city. And we're given a similar kind of description here. They're living it up rather than kind of, um, uh, yeah, rather than turning and repentance, they're having a party. Um, and the, the end is the same for both of them. It, it's judgment. It's taking away uh, the protection. Alright, so in verse 15 there's a shift and so we've been focused on um, there's been this focus on the people as a whole in the city, and now the second half of the chapter focuses on the comparison of these two stewards. Um, so Shebna and Eliakim, what, what's up with these stewards? <laughs> Let's start with uh, Shebna. What, what do we think uh, the problem, or what does Isaiah say is the problem with uh, our steward Shebna?
Yeah, so here, um, as we think about Shebna, he, he's literally, uh, as, as, um, as Bill says, you know, he's rather than using his position for the good of the people, he's using it to augment himself, <laughs> his reputation, uh, and especially the, the show of it. I mean, to sort of think he's really, uh, Isaiah's really kind of singling out this tune. Um, what have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. So, you know, this expensive monument to himself that, you know, again, sort of going to cement, you know, his reputation, not just in present age, but for, you know, ages to come, that people are going to be able to look on this tomb and say, Shebna, we must really give look at this fabulous tomb. <laughs> um, rather than, and uh, especially with the, the comparison to a lie tomb, rather than using his position um, of authority for the good of the people, he's using it for the good of himself. Good. Other things you want to say about Shebna? <laughs> Yeah, he calls him a strong man, and then we have this description of what a real strong man is. Um, the end of verse uh, 17. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide net. Now, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what that means, but I can see it. <laughs> you know, so here's this guy, you know, um, he, oh, you strong man, as Bill says, let me show you what real strength is. <laughs> you know, I can just imagine such like the, the hammer thrower, or, you know, a shot putter, just sort of like <laughs> slinging it, um, you know. And, uh, and again, the, the irony here, he's in Jerusalem, he's building a monument to himself. And the picture, again, I don't know what all the kind of throwing and, uh, you know, I know it looks like, still not quite sure what all it means, but I think the main point is he's going to die somewhere else. You know, God is going to toss you like a ball somewhere else and nobody's going to be able to find you. And rather than endure with this monument to your name, you're going to die captivity elsewhere. Yeah, Scott. Yeah, <laughs> to sort of think, yeah, I love it. The strong man that gets tossed, <laughs> um, you know, hurled easily. Um, uh, so I, I used to, I sometimes I'll tell the story uh, uh, about how when I was a, I, w I was a lightweight as a freshman in college, a lot lighter than I am now. <laughs> um, and literally there were two uh, linemen one day who decided they wanted to play catch with me. And I was the ball. <laughs> so they were like, hey, look, we can throw screens back and forth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was all in good fun. Um, I, I had a better fate than the freshman kicker who they took his clothes off, put him on a cart, and wheeled him into the field. So, so glad it wasn't me. Y'all can play catch with me as long as you want, you know. But that, you know, that idea, you know, I – you know, I wasn't huge, but still, you know, to throw 130 pounds back and 
forth like I was nothing, and they really were. I mean, it was just, that was like it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> what happens if y'all miss? <laughs> um, but that, you know, this picture of this guy who thinks, uh, I love the way Rob said it, he thinks he's a heavyweight until he meets, you know, the sovereign God who is the heavyweight. He thinks he's crafting a name for himself rather than looking to the one whose name is everlasting. Um, and this ostentation, again, this kind of uh, 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 chariots, um, there you shall die out in this wide land. Um, rather than dying and being placed in his tomb, he'll die in a wide land, and there shall be your glorious chariot. So apparently Shebna had a really sweet ride. He was seen around Jerusalem then. <laughs> um, again, showing off his wealth, showing off his position of power, using his position to exalt himself rather than using it as a position of stewardship um, and leading the people toward God, um, which we see Eliakim do in the second half of this comparison. I will clothe him with your robe, bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fashion him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Um, so again, the contrast between, and some people think Shebna might be an outsider, that he's a foreigner who's in this tower. You know, what have you to do with this city? Um, we don't have Shebna's father's name, but Eliakim. Um, we're told that Eliakim um, is the son of Hilkiah. So it's sort of, again, this kind of description from this outsider who's in this position of authority in the king's house versus this insider. Yes, sir. Isaiah is using this moment to <laughs> to nail him in a really bad way. <laughs> um, and again, I, I think he's using it uh, again. The the focus of um, you know zeroing in on these two guys is again just sort of what's a proper response. So, uh, and I think one reason Shebna is not uh, in, in king isn't uh, because in many ways his response, you know, is what he's supposed to do, you know, as we see them in this chapter, but it's the heart, um, which is Isaiah, what Isaiah, you know, what's the heart that's leading 